market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is proudly post-COVID resilient. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm, I'm exceptionally well. In fact, I'm so well I'm in Dubbo right now. I mean, not literally right now, but right now when this is going to air. So if you're walking around Dubbo Zoo with the uh, the old uh, AirPods or Google Pixel Buds or some other brand of uh, headphone in your ears and you see me walking around Dubbo Zoo, feel free to give me a wave, say good day. Um, my young bloke, if I know him, is going to be running from exhibit to exhibit in some sort of fast-paced uh, you know, running from, from animal to animal, which should be lots of fun. I'm looking forward to doing that. So that's where I am right now. But of course, we're not going to leave you in the lurch, dear listener. We have sat down and put our noses to the grindstone. We've burnt the midnight oil. We've just insert metaphor here. We're not going to leave you in the lurch. Here are some great podcast enjoyment for your ears. Can I say that, Doc? Yeah, I, I was going to go on a tangent. Oh, you want me to go on a tangent or you've got one? No, I'm going to go on a tangent. <laughs> I, I find say, that hard to believe. Well, I was going to say that, you know, you said if somebody's walking around use on, you know, wearing their, what did you say, pixel bud or something like uh, that? AirPods or pixel buds. Pixel bud, yeah. yeah. But here's the problem, right? For every hundred people yeah. out there who wear an AirPod, yeah. it's probably one person who's wearing that pixel whatever thing you're talking about. <laughs> What's the point even mentioning it? There's just no point. Nobody cares about it. Because, mate, I care about the discerning listener as well as the sheeple, is all I'm saying. Ah, <sighs> well, I check... <laughs> Nobody cares about it. It's like talking about, I don't know, like something unique, antique. Exactly. Wonderful. See, highly valued, it's, lasts the test of time. That's a great analogy. It's I like probably it not even going to exist, the pixel <laughs> brand. That's my prediction. Let's move on. Now that I've made my prediction. Whatever you're listening on, uh, come and say good day. All right. Mate, we are going to do something we haven't done for about six months. We are going to pick some stocks. We're going to give our listeners some extra goodness, some audio goodness, and hopefully some financial goodness by giving them six stocks for a post-COVID world. Why six, I hear you ask? Because we thought we'd do three each. And so three and three is six. It was that mathematically clever. I've sat down and thought about this for hours and put the abacus out and worked out that three plus three is six. So we're going to give you six stocks for a post-COVID world. Now, let's set this up, Doc. Um, Coronavirus is here right now. The last, well, again, we're recording this um, a couple of weeks early, so goodness knows what's happened on the market since. Um, We do reserve the right to change any of these stocks, by the way, if we need to, um, after the fact. But we're picking these stocks on the 25th of June, so bear that in mind. We're picking six stocks for the post-COVID world. We are optimists. We are card-carrying optimists. We are people who believe that despite setbacks, drawbacks, market volatility, falls, recoveries, whatever else happens, that great companies and the pure value of democratic capitalism will out over time. It always has. Uh, there is no guarantee of it always will, but I'll tell you what, I don't know anything more likely, simply because uh, to, to, to steal and to mangle a Winston Churchill phrase, um, democratic capitalism is the worst possible system there is, except for every other system that's been tried. It has unleashed an amazing amount of human ingenuity, productivity and progress. And, and while we're not... I'm, not, I'm certainly not a free marketeer. I won't speak for you. I'm not a free marketeer. I believe in well-regulated but open markets. That's that's kind of my sweet spot, I think, for economic growth and prosperity. And so to believe that this will come to a grinding halt because of a temporary, albeit prolonged, problem, I think is a really, really um, – it's just unlikely. I think if you want to take that view, you're entitled to. Do I think that's the most likely scenario? I really, really, really don't. So I think you know the economy gets back on track. Companies get back on track. In fact, some are already and still on track and that'll be part of the sample we talk about. Some will be businesses that have been hit hard and hopefully will bounce back. But again, thinking about the long-term future post-COVID 
and it will be over. We will get past this. Maybe we end up living with it. Maybe it goes away altogether. But either way, the economy will go on. People will get back to work. Businesses will spend again. And the best businesses will continue to thrive. In fact, it's been so long since a recession, Doc, that people forget that, in fact, the strong businesses actually get come out recessions better they went in because the refining fire of adversity tends to get rid of the um, the less well-performing businesses, the lower quality businesses, and leaves the higher quality businesses behind. So if we can find those, as much as we never want to wish economic adversity on anybody individually or countries as uh, the world as a whole, if and when it comes, owning the best businesses that actually thrive at the other side is a super, super useful way to think about it. And again, the likes of Harvey Norman, not one of the stocks we normally talk about as a as a big winner or about our favourite stocks. Neither of us own it or have recommended it. But you know, it has gone through recession after recession since the late 70s. And each time come out more strong than it went in because it simply was able to withstand and, and cement its place in, in the marketplace. So with that in mind, mate, with that massive preamble, well, firstly, do you want to add to my preamble or have I, have I talked enough? I think I've talked enough. <laughs> it's very diplomatically put. Let's get into six stocks for the post-COVID world. And maybe because I get to ask the questions or because I, we're going to do it alphabetically by first name or for any other reason I choose to decide, I'm going to invite you to go first. Let me know your first stock for a post-COVID world. Okay, so this is not in any particular order. Okay, let's do it alphabetically then, just to keep it completely well, out of like order. you're making me work, do extra work now. Does I have that to work? Try A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I have to figure out which I, one. You're, you're okay. I okay. think you can do that. Okay. You're a smart fine, fine. Uh <laughs> I think I got this. Okay. The first talk I'm going to give out is, um, again, these are all recommendations in one form or the other, so uh, Catapult. Um, so this is a, a small little company. What it does is it makes um, hardware and software. The hardware is basically tracking. Uh, it's The best way to think about it, this is basically Apple Watch-like type hardware oh, go. that goes onto an athlete's <laughs> body okay and and the, you know it's used to detect various things how fast they're moving what their heart rate is doing you know um, did they hit someone and things like that. So pressure movement speed all sorts of data is collected now, i've seen a little matchbox shaped protrusion on the back of their football jumpers they're the, they're the ones yeah. we're talking about right the little exactly. things sit on the on a kind of on the spine between the collarbones you'll see this little matchbox size thing where it's afl jumper rugby jumper or whatever yeah that's collecting a whole lot of data, and they're often catapult devices. Yes. So again, this is uh, the set of devices are used by lots of sports teams. You know, they're using AFL, they're using in National Hockey League in the US. They're used, you know, a bunch of different things. So. Professional professional athletes use this on their body. The data is collected. Mm-hmm. Then the data goes and sits in some software and some database, again, typically owned by um, Catapult again. Mm-hmm. So they've got um, a software called Athlete Management System, okay. AMS. Um, they also have other things that they've acquired, which is things like video technology that allows you to record a game and use the recording to sort of again do analysis of uh, the game and mm. how the game was progressing and to do athlete training. So this is all used for training, m- making the teams better, uh, conditioning athletes and so on. If there's if there's rugby league fans listening to us, and I'm sure there are a few, um, I, I think it was either Catapult's device or at least it was similar type device that we used in the what was called the Telstra Tracker. Um, I own Telstra, I should disclose that, not that it matters just because that's what it was called, during the state of origin in last year. So last year they showed some of the distances and speeds and stuff by some of the athletes, one of those big TV programming features. Was it Catapult? I think it was actually a Catapult device from yeah, memory. Yeah, probably I think it's Catapult. Again, like there's a... There's a, yeah. So, yeah. Like, so I mean, if you remember the, the if you remember the Telstra tracker, um, you will have seen some of that in action. Exactly. So that's what what this. So it's again, 
used in all sorts of professional sports around the world, mm. uh, football as well, English Premier League and all these other things. So they've got big name, big name ticket uh, customers, um, and their strategy really is to a grow sort of the dependencies of their hardware and software, mm. and to sort of move a little bit downstream to professional, you know, so like you know, think about university sports that happens in you know right. in the in the US and in Europe and things they like are that. Huge. Huge. The, the number of people I, I was so I didn't I don't watch a lot of US sports. I was in the US for work. How I don't know how long ago it was now. It feels like six months ago, but it must have been longer than that. And I was watching, I, as I tend to do, I was sitting in the hotel. I think I got in on a Sunday, so I was just put the TV on, and they were showing one of the one of the um, just one of the college football, literally college so NFL right, gridiron. Um, and they get tens and tens of th- they get more people than NRL games get just for a college football game and the supporters are bananas they get there at 8 in the morning they party all day they watch the game it is just an absolute phenomenon and so much money involved in these sports exactly so like I mean yeah so that, that's also actually classified as professional sports because right. it's professional um, it's yeah, just okay. not tier 1 maybe yeah, right, it's right, tier right. 2 yeah. a lot of that you know that tier then people move to tier uh, 1 from there yeah. right so there's like a uh, I guess there's a progression path it's almost like sense. playing yeah, okay. If it's almost like playing um, cricket here in clubs, right? I mean, we have yeah, clubs right, right, right. by uh, various regions. Then you know, yeah. then you have like you know, state, and then I guess then you have. That's right. So you got grade cricket, yeah. then you got state cricket, Sheffield yeah. Shield, then you got the national team. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's sort of but that, yeah. all of that would be classified as I guess in some form professional. Right. Okay, unless you're playing it for amateur reasons, yeah, and, yeah. and of course they have got amateur things that they make miniature versions of this for amateur as well. Right. Uh, what they call the uh, prosumers, the consumers who are uh, semi. My professionals, the presumers, yep. uh, hard term. So this company, now of course because of COVID, games are put off or not happening, and so you know it's been hit there. Uh, clearly, there might be some churn in terms of you know some some of these uh, teams maybe mm-hmm. not renewing their contracts. Maybe some teams, you know, and, and, and yeah. professional sport is is a big business, right? Professional sports. Can teams can also go bankrupt? Mm-hmm. It sounds <laughs> odd, but it does can happen. Can do have exactly and can right. do yeah. and have in yeah. the past, yeah. Yeah. or the team owners go bankrupt. Yeah. So there's this that tailwind. But <laughs> what we can, what we do know that this is a leader, uh, and you know that basically two companies that are leaders, and there's this one in a privately held company called mm-hmm. Statsports out of Ireland, mm. and sure there can be churn, but you know it's hard. It would be hard for me to see a world where we don't have professional sports or any form of sports. Right. Like, uh, it's exactly as the same thing as saying there will be no travel. There will be sports. There <laughs> right. will be will travel. Yes. Yeah, a- yeah, yeah. Eventually, maybe without uh, without people in the stadium or as, yeah. as has been planned here with, you know, reduced attendance. Yeah. But then, therefore, this is an essential tool, uh, both hardware and software that has that plays an essential role. And I think, you know, over time, this will only find deeper penetration across um, professional and, you know, presumer uh, fans, nice. I guess. So Everyone wants an edge. Everyone wants to look after their players. Everyone wants to get the best yeah. bang for their buck. This is one of those – you know what I love about this idea too, mate? It's not your idea, not mine, but let me just kind of throw my thought in. As a concept – there is an arms race in all sorts of things in life, right? And if you think about the the idea of sports analytics, athlete performance management, all that kind of stuff, if you're a professional sports team and you want an advantage over your competitor, you're going to try and grab this. Now, the beauty of that is once they do, the competitor says, well, I need it too then. And so you kind of get this, this, this arm, quite literally this arms race, right? Over time, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember in the 80s when even rugby league players had day jobs. They'd be garbos five days a week. They'd train twice a, twice a week in the evenings and then go to games on the weekend, right? Now they are, they are full-time professional athletes. They're training five, six days a week with 
your cool down sessions and recovery sessions and, and like there is you know the professionalization the arms race of trying to find the extra edge is just fantastic the, the catapult idea of like you know a if someone if some other league's got it you might as well and if you've got it your competitor's going to want it and then there is that you know it's it's a nice place to be when your, your product is considered part of that arms race that no one wants to give up to save a couple of bucks if it's the difference between winning and losing Right, and that, that's absolutely right. You know, I'm going to make it a little bit. Uh, I'm going to make it uh, turn it into a little bit of uh, what I would say, regional competition. So this company originates <laughs> from Melbourne, uh, oh. Victoria. It's headquartered in Melbourne, uh, Victoria. Uh, so Victorians can, you know, maybe clap um, <laughs> and, and think this is their company. Uh, still, it's still there. It's everyone's company. But, <laughs> uh, but so that's that's the first idea. Nice. Uh, I'm going to pass it on to you. Scott. So that's catapult. The code is C A T. Now. This is uh, let me, well, before you do pass it on. Um, some people listening going, "How on earth are you suggesting with all of the professional sports leagues shut down? With every you know, like, the, is this not the very worst possible time to be buying a sports analytics company? Given what's happening in the world of sport right now." Well, yeah, but I mean, that's why you get you you get that discount as well. I mean, so you think about it this way. Yes, probably not the best time in the sense that it's not the best time for the business, but it's also pretty essential, as you said, soft, uh, software and hardware. So those teams that are surviving, they're going to continue using the software and the hardware. Right. Um, it's also another thing to remember is, is these things become part and parcel of your process, mm-hmm. your daily life uh, for the athlete and their teams and their managers and their coaches. So once it's in their workflow you know what are you going to do you're going to throw this out and put stat sports <laughs> in you can yeah. um, it's re- effectively a two horse race um, and again I mean I don't think it's going to be thrown out again I can see how upgrades may not happen temporarily I can right. see new sales may not happen temporarily uh, but that's you know you get a discount for that um, and 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 you know, as long as you're willing to, I'm not saying that the share price is going to go up now. I'm not saying it's going to not going to could go down further, yep. uh, depending on how long again sports are going. To, if you have the stomach for volatility, then I, I think this company is. I don't think this company is going to vanish, and um, at least that's my my assumption here. And I think that it is reasonably priced for its future opportunities. Uh, looking at you know its total addressable market, its. Um, opportunity to upsell to existing customers and existing teams and things like that i think it's got room room to grow and it's you know it's more or less on on target to hit a cash flow break even uh, you know in a year or so mm. which is an important you know point at that gives the company a, a little bit more room and less dependence on capital markets which which is a good thing and yeah so i think again Probably sometimes the best time to buy a company that is potentially resilient is when it is down and out or thought to be down and out mm. because the sentiment, you're not paying up for positive sentiment. Mm. Um, so that's that's the thing. Um, yeah. So again, as I said, professional sports is unlikely to disappear. I think that's fair. So I'm going to steal a line from our co-founder, David Gardner here. I mention him every now and again. Uh, he has a podcast himself. Uh, feel free to look that up, Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. David's excellent. He had a series at one point when things were tough last year uh, called Clouds I Can See Through. This is one where you're saying the short term could be bumpy, but the cloud you can see through is on the other side of this, there are as many or more professional sports, as many or more uh, dollars being put towards it and catapult stands to win at a, at a pretty attractive price right now. 
That is right. Very good. I'm going to go with my first one, mate. It's a name that our listeners will have heard plenty of. It's a stock we actually both recommended early in the year. The company is Kogan, or Kogan.com is its official name, but it's funny, you know, we've kind of, remember when everything was .com because it sounded cooler? Every company had a .com in their, in their business name. I remember back in 99, companies would, share prices would grow 20% if they just rebranded themselves as something.com, right? If we were, if we were, if we were MotleyFool.com, or if we were MotleyFool back then, we would, of course, as MotleyFool.com and got a 20% increase in the share price just by putting the internet uh, suffix on the end. Kogan is the online retailer that many of us know, many of us love, and increasing numbers of us are both knowing and loving right through this particular pandemic. To be fair, the share price has done incredibly well, unlike Catapult that's had a pullback because, but oh, I hate the term, I don't know why I've used it, where share price fell, let's call it, just plain English for a second, because people are worried about the future and we think unfairly, certainly Doc does. Um, Kogan has done very well because its sales has con- have continued to absolutely rocket through this period. In fact, improved, increased sales growth because of the pandemic. And the share price is up a lot. And so if you're someone who says, oh, I don't want to buy when the share price is up, this is not one for you. However, I think that would be a mistake. So I think Kogan as a business has a very, very long runway of growth ahead of it. It is in a dozen plus verticals, a vertical being a different business line, whether that's pet insurance, car insurance, uh, mobile phones, internet, MBN, um, obviously physical retail, or not physical retail, but you know actual product retail, uh, products coming to your store, to your door. Uh, This is a business that has found great new ways of being a really relevant and increasingly relevant retailer. It does a fantastic job of executing on its business plan. I think for me, that's the key one. If If you're trying to design a business, an online retail business, you would say, hey, what I need to do is get customers as cheaply as I can, sign them up to my mailing list, and then provide them with as many opportunities to buy from me as I possibly can. And when I say opportunities, good priced or great product or additional products, things they either were looking for and can find on Kogan or they weren't looking for, but now Kogan has an option for. They are monetizing that mailing list spectacularly well. Um, And again, the numbers speak for themselves. Their sales in May were up 100% on the previous year. Now, of course, that is pandemic related. I'm not suggesting that's the ongoing sales growth. If it is, then the shares are even cheaper than I think they are. This is a business that really does have a very, very bright future. What I particularly like about Kogan is, and we've talked about this a couple of times in different contexts recently, um, it's a business that is small, like, you know, big enough, but very, very small in the overall retail scheme of things. Even with a pandemic pullback, it's gaining share. Now, in this case, specifically because it's online, but even more so because simply it's the it's the default choice for people who are looking to, around saying, I want to buy something, I, I can't or don't want to go to the shop. I'll jump online. Who's there? Well, of course, Kogan is my answer. The new marketplace business they have, I think is going to do really, really well where they basically offer to host other people's products on their site and sell them through for them. Um, I think that'll continue to do really good business for them. I think Kogan continues to become a larger and larger player in Australian retail, not just online retail because online retail will become a larger share of Australian retail. So if you're someone who is gaining share in online, Online is gaining share of total retail and you are finding new and better products to sell to people, as I said, including insurances and all sorts of travel insurance, credit cards, superannuation. Uh, Literally, if they can sell it, they are. And they're doing a really, really great job of monetizing that customer base. Now, financially, what I like about Kogan is it's only just profitable, by the way. So we don't want to talk about this as a business that's already arrived. It's certainly still on the way to arriving. And there are risks, as with all of these businesses we'll talk about today. Um, Share price-wise is frankly one of them. The share price has gone up a lot recently. And so there's a lot of expectation of the share price. If it fails to deliver, the share price could well and truly fall from here. I assume or believe temporarily, but it could still happen. The benefit of being just profitable is as you grow your top line, you have two choices. Either 
you can reinvest your new profits into even greater sales growth well into the future, which is the Amazon kind of strategy, or you can bank some of those profits. And the good thing about it is its profit margins now are so small because it's just become profitable that it doesn't take much anything to add to the top line. If they choose to, most of that money can fall straight to the bottom line and really juice the bottom line. If you're a really simple example, which isn't necessarily representative, but close. If you're doing $100 million in sales, you make a million dollars in profit, that's 1%, right? Now, if you do an extra, extra $10 million in sales and you can keep half of that money, just to pick a number, then all of a sudden your sales go from 100 to 105, oh, sorry, 110, sorry, 110, and your profit goes from one to six. So all of a sudden you've got a 10% sales growth, which is six times your profit. That's not really grammatically correct, six times. It's multiplied your profit. It's, it, your profit's increased sixfold. Now, again, I'm not saying they will do that. I don't think they will. I think they'll reinvest for growth. But that's the sort of operating leverage you've got if you're just moderately profitable, but on a, on, a, on a growth trajectory that says you should be able to deliver meaningfully larger sales and profit growth over time. So again, I'm not using those numbers as, as, as forecasts or predictions. I don't do either of those two things. Um, but if you think about the Kogan potential here, I, I think it's going to continue to be a really, really impressive business. It has competition from Amazon, from plenty of other people alongside it. Um, there is absolutely no guarantees here. We should be mindful of that. Again, the share price can be super volatile as sentiment changes. But I think Kogan is one of the most promising medium-ish sized businesses on the ASX with a good track record, a really good founder. We like Rosalind Kogan a lot. I've met him. We've had him talk to Motley for Platinum, as we've said before. Um, smart, capable guy. In fact, being compared to Amazon, he was he was chuffed by the comparison rather than chafed at it, which I thought was, was pretty impressive too. He said, look, if you, you guys think we're even close to those guys, then I'm stoked. Um, humble guy doing the right things to really – super leverage the business model and they're doing it incredibly, incredibly well. So I own it for the full full transparency. The Motley Fool also owns shares. So take that with a, with a grain of salt. Understand that I may well be biased. I probably am, um, but I, I own shares for a reason. That is because I expect that Kogan will continue to do well. I was going to ask you a question. Shoot. Um, so I like Kogan. I'll caveat that first. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I see that there's a company called Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Yes, exactly. Um, which is opening huge, big uh, warehouses in Sydney. And we both own shares. And we both own shares, exactly. And it is, uh, you know, it's got several billion dollars on its balance sheet. It could, you know, if it wanted, it could e- eat up mm-hmm. Kogan, which basically means it could buy Kogan. Yes. Um, I would welcome that. Uh, <laughs> with a little bit of a premium. Um, but, isn't there a danger here that the the little guy can be muscled, trampled on by a big guy like um, by Amazon? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, no, I think I think Amazon is Amazon is huge. I think Amazon will actually do really, really well in Australia. I'm not. This is not a Kogan uh, Kogan or Amazon story for mine. If you think about the size of online retail, you and I have batted around some numbers about how big we expect online retail to be over time, and it's not going to be even just those two players. There'll be we talked about Premier Investments before, we talked about Temple and Webster, we've talked about Woolworths. Um, there will be plenty of players on online retail, but I think online retail will become, I don't think it's too bullish to say in the fullest of time, 70, 75% of retail and probably even 50% in the relatively short term. I think if you continue to extrapolate the sort of growth that we're getting from right, right across the sector, including businesses that already have physical retail plus online retail. Now, as and when that happens, I actually might, if I was a betting man, I would say Amazon wins. I would say Amazon is the largest single online retailer at some future point in time. But I don't think it needs to be a problem. I think Kogan can be a very, very profitable, successful second-placed player. Um, I don't. I own, I own both. That, that's probably you know <laughs> to answer your question. Um, I think both are positioned to do very, very well when the online retail marketplace is five, ten times the size it is today. Um, you don't have to try too hard to believe that 
both these players can can do very well. So, uh, yeah, is it going to be competition? Yes. They'll sell different products differently to different people. Um, I wouldn't at all be surprised to see them as one business at some point. You know, an eventual um, exit for, for Koga might be to be part of Amazon, quite frankly. Um, but I'm happy to own both. I think they both can succeed in a very, very profitable, promising and fragmented online retail marketplace. Cool. I was going to ask you one more question. Shoot. Okay. Uh, does the current PE yes. scare you? Uh, no, because of the long-term future, I think it has, and the, the leverage of its profit that I talked about. So, you know, it, a bit like Amazon, should it choose to maximize profit, it could do it tomorrow, and probably the PE could fall by a factor of three in all probability. If it simply said tomorrow, hey, let's pull back on that market and let's put more money on the bottom line, it could probably triple profit without blinking, and probably even better than that if it really wanted to, particularly in the current sales growth environment. If it simply said, look, sales are going through the roof, let's pull back on marketing, let's bank all this money as profit, I mean, quite honestly, it could probably almost 10x its profit, which I know sounds stupid, but if it wanted to, I'm pretty sure it could. Um, so the PE is not very useful in this case. I expect it to be a much, much bigger sales operation and a much bigger proportionally profitable profit operation. In other words, whatever it grows sales by, it can grow profit by multiples of that, I expect, over time. So no, the, I, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not a hyper growth investor, generally speaking, but when you can see both by analogy with Amazon and just you know mathematically, financially with the way it could grow its business, it feels to me like a pretty. Again, it's, is it risky? Yes, absolutely. These are these are going to be risky stocks. All six that we talk about today, um, but I think it's a I think it's a very promising operation, a very promising, uh, a well-run business that has a lot of potential. Very cool. I have nothing to ask. Thank you, sir. Get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. How about your second stock for a post-COVID world, mate? Alrighty, the second one is a company called EML Payments. That sounds like a boring finance company. Yes, you know, it's a boring. Boring <laughs> companies can be just fine. You know, uh, it used to be called Emergence before. It's now called EML Payments. The code <laughs> is EML. Unsurprisingly, I can't decide what's better: EML Payments or Emergence. They both Emergence does sound very. 1995 merchant particularly is like the uh, I would just change it to emlpayments.com <laughs> and if that's they worth do 20%. if they do I think they should pay me for that's that that's worth 20% uh, <laughs> so, so uh, okay so I'll, let me make it jargony this is a fintech oh. company basically it's another word for saying it's a financial technology company that basically provides payment solutions and what that all sounds very jargony mate without actually saying anything so it's a fintech that provides for payment solutions uh, I'm Brilliant. thinking uh, that's, that's any company yeah, that's every right. company okay. what does so it actually what, do okay so I'll tell you, what it does is very simple things it you know like in many uh, sectors we have this thing called salary sacrificing for, for example yes. you know, people who are uh, nurses and doctors they can sacrifice their salary and get like a what's called a meal entertainment card right mm-hmm. and what that basically means is a portion of your salary is loaded into a credit card mm. which is issued by guess who EML. <laughs> so it's a little, if you're not familiar with it, it's a little bit of a perk for some government employees. They pay a little bit less tax by basically diverting some pre-tax income. Yeah. Uh, which is completely legal and appropriate and, and it's huge done by a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, again, and, and it's, it doesn't have to be that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is basically, uh, I used it as an example thinking some people may be familiar with it, mm-hmm. but it, it's effectively providing mm-hmm. uh, reloadable cards Basically, it has got you know a debit card or a credit card to which you can load something, right? Um, that's one example. Another example, that's a popular example, might be that if you go to a, uh, go to a mall and you want to get a gift card for that mall, yeah. or so many gift cards, right? When you buy gift cards, basically you load some 
dollars onto the gift card. Mm-hmm. Uh, this company basically provides the functionality for doing just that, mm-hmm. right? So um, think about salary payouts, think about gifts, think about you know rewards, think about essentially any sort of card payment. These are these sort of payments. These are niche payments. Yeah, right. right? But it provides that, and it does okay. this over twenty-one different countries in Europe, wow. North America, and Australia. It's a hell of a niche. It's a hell of a, it's a pretty global company. Yeah. Right? It's a global company that has... Well, I think a, niches, I think, it, you know, it's got 15 customers in a particular industry over here. It, it's niche, I guess, from a financial services perspective and how massive that industry is. Yes, but yes. it's still big, right? It's pretty big. So it's it's, it's niche because, you know, it's not really uh, like an... Uh, it's not like an automated data processing company. Right, which right, is right. Not, You're not processing salaries for, you know, millions and millions of people across the globe. Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's not doing that. But it is a niche... Um, it, has, it even does, does things like, you know, um, if, if you have salary packaging, for example, mm. right, and you have a fuel card, it can do that for you too. Nice. So okay. it, it serves that uh, good. huge, huge niche. Yeah. Now, this company has been particularly hit hard because a lot of the gifts and incentives, for example, that are related <laughs> to retail yeah. uh, have suffered <laughs> so big good. time, right? right, right. Now, again, again if, you, if you assume that you know, nobody's going to ever give gifts in this form, nobody's mm. going to ever um, you know, have these reloadable cards reloaded with money, mm-hmm. then I think uh, it's reasonable. They also do, uh, by the way, also do gaming, for example, which has also been hit. So okay. when I say gaming, basically, you know, if you want to make bets, for example, okay. and that bets have to be paid oh, for yeah, via right. a card which has to be right. preloaded or a certain type of card which can be only issued because you are of the legal age and things like that. That's Those right. cards too are issued by this company. Again, that sector too has been hit because there mm. are no games happening. There are no bets on those right. games of happening. Of course, yeah. Right? So, this company has been in an unfortunate position. Mm. Uh, but before this, it was growing its... One way to think about these payments companies is to think about the total volume of uh, money that's flowing through them. Yeah, right. right? Uh, think of, they would say, you know, gross debit volume, for example, is, is one way to look at that. And because they get a cut of that, mm. right, um, that's one way to think about how this company is growing. So, yeah, um, uh, yeah so their growth has been hit, mm-hmm. but for reasons we all know. Yeah. Um, and I think if you assume that that's, you know, there's going to be some form of, you know, return to normalcy, uh, then these type of businesses have again, you know, similar to what you talked about for Kogan, have immense mm. uh, leverage, right? And when I say leverage in a, in a good way, because there's only a certain amount of cost that you have in the business to run a payment network. Right. When I say payment network, basically yeah, right, ensure right, right. that, you know, money has been loaded and money is being paid and goes through a pipe, which is basically all digital. Yeah. <laughs> right? So there's only so much you need to do. Once you've right. got the infrastructure, <laughs> yeah. every yeah. additional dollar that's flowing through that infrastructure is basically yeah. pure profit. Yeah. So uh, right now, it's sitting on a fixed cost with low... Uh, low volume flowing through it, you know, mm-hmm. eventually as it signs up more malls, more uh, more employers, more, you know, uh, salary sacrificing type of companies, more of that basically mm-hmm. all adds up to Makes profit. Sense. Of course, it, it costs money to sign up people, but once you sign up people, they're likely to stick around for a long time. There's geographical expansion possibilities. Nice. Um, so, a lot of possibilities. It's a nice growth company. It's been doing very well, um, but not so well recently. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's the opportunity. Uh, there's an opportunity here. Mate, um, I get it, but you talked about Apple Pay maybe 
I don't know, 45,000 times or so. I'm kidding. Um, but with all of the online stuff happening, is EML not just the short-term middleman between traditional payments and purely online digital payments and this whole card thing in between is just a bit of a, a transition technology? How does that play out? I love the question you put, uh, you put because EML cards support Apple Pay. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you? I mean, at some point, don't don't people bypass this and just use Apple Pay directly? Like, what's does email have a future in, in that as that middleman? Yeah, that's that's a good, that's a very good question. So here's the thing, right? Apple's Pay technology is uh, basically saying. You should be able to pay using any card, yep. but using Apple's pay technology. And Apple's going to clip it, you know, uh, take it on that. Right. But Apple is not really interested in, you know, negotiating between the health department and their payment people and trying to become the provider for that. Apple mm-hmm. is not interested in that. Mm-hmm. The, you know, uh, Apple is a consumer-facing company in that sense. It's not a business-facing company in in that sense. It's not mm-hmm. interested in directly providing. Also, Apple is interested in Apple based technology it's not really interested in you know does it want to provide gift cards in mm-hmm. malls right what it would want is all those <laughs> gift cards to have apple pay capability which eml has promptly adopted yeah, right yeah, because yeah. it makes it easy for the card That's cool. holder yeah, to yeah. pay so yeah. i think those two things actually coexist nicely and you know i'm saying apple pay it could be google pay or any other you know samsung mm-hmm. pay or whatever else exists right i mean the other things are not that important but sure. um oh, here we go yeah, Couldn't but, resist, yeah. could you? Couldn't yeah. resist. I mean, there are important things and not so important things. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, this is a coexistence. I think there's nice. no uh, the same thing. I would say that it does it it coexists with even Visa and Mastercard because again they're using the same mm. platform. They're providing a functionality, I guess, on top of that. Yeah, right. Okay, right? makes sense. Which is yeah, the connection kind of technology. Yeah, or functionality. Nice one. That's EML payments code is EML from memory. Yes, it's pretty easy to remember. Three down, three to go, mate. We'll try and make the next three a little bit quicker because um, we're, we're taking up a lot of time here, and we just need to make sure we don't uh, don't don't spend too long on it. So let's keep going. Uh, next one for me is a te- medical technology company called Nanasonics. Now. Nanosonics we've talked about a little bit in the past and, and without getting too technical because I don't know the technologies well enough to be technical, it creates or it provides, I should say, a machine that, that um, uh, what's the word? I was going to say desensitizes. What's it called? Sanitizers? Help me out. What does it do? Um, sterilizers. Jeez. Sterilizers. Medical probes. Now, if you've been thinking about infections and cross-infections and, and that sort of stuff with COVID, well, guess what? Nanosonics doesn't do that exactly, but it's in the same kind of area. Its job is to make sure that infections aren't passed between patient and patient or patient and medical practitioner because of the use of otherwise inappropriately or insufficiently, insufficiently sterilized medical probes. It's a little machine. You put the probe inside it and it uses, here's a, here's a, uh, a wanky phrase, nanonebulance. In other words, really, really small um, uh, solution. Effectively, it sprays onto the probe, disinfects it. I'm not going to go into. I mean, that's the this is the layman's version of it, right? There are probably much more technical, both from <laughs> from a technology and a medical perspective. But effectively, it disinfects by using really, really small particles to make sure there is almost no, as, as much as possible, no. But they can never guarantee 100% sterilization. But almost no remaining uh, pathogens, infections, other things that I want to pass between patient and patient, or as I said, patient and practitioner, and back to another patient. The opportunity here is that right now there are other methods of sterilization which are both slow and much less effective. Nanosonics is very quickly becoming right around the world the standard of care. Really 
really high-profile medical uh, teaching hospitals in the US. Um, governments, entire health systems are recognising that nanosonics technology, it's called the Trophon machine, if you ever come across it, T-R-O-P-H-O-N, Trophon, um, becoming the standard of care really, really quickly. Basically, they're saying, look, there's other stuff out there. This does the best job out there. This is the standard of care. This is the, the gold standard, if you like, for disinfection. That's a really, really impressive, really important part of, of kind of you know, nanosonics is offering. In the medical industry, acceptance and recommendation, referral, um, whatever you want to call it, the idea that this is the gold standard, the question comes up, well, why wouldn't you use nanosonics technology? What else would you use instead? And how would you justify that? Now, it doesn't mean everyone all of a sudden overnight is going to take up the technology. There's costs and there's other machines and there's, you know, a whole lot of things that would keep people from adopting it. But whatever it is and remains the standard of care, it's reasonable to assume that more and more hospitals across more and more geographies are going to want to implement this particular technology. Now, it's not just the box. The beauty of this is that nanonebulant solution I talked about is a consumable product that, guess who sells? Nanosonics. And so not only does it make money selling the machine to a hospital or a medical system, it then continually provides this particular solution, a bit of like, you know, we call it the razor and blade model, right? The idea of the razor and the blade is you buy a razor, and then you buy the, that company's blades over and over and over again. So they make a bit of money on the razor, a lot of money when you buy the blades every couple of weeks or every couple of months. In Nanosonic's case, they make a little bit of money selling the machine and a whole lot of money selling the solution that goes in the machine to make sure they can actually disinfect the probes correctly. Now, interestingly enough, this is this stock was hit hard uh, you know, in, the, in, the, in the immediate response to COVID. It's bounced back a little bit, not miles away from its previous highs. And in the near future, I have to say, I do expect a little bit of volatility for the operational business here because I've got to say, if you're going to try and sell a bit of hardware to a medical system, they're probably going to say, look, dude, you might have heard this in coronavirus. We're kind of busy dealing with that right now. Like, <laughs> I'd love to talk to you, but really now? So I actually expect they'll get uh, the lower lower sales or smaller, shorter, whatever, um, metaphor you want to use, sales pipeline for the next little while, while frankly, hospitals deal with it. And I think that's exactly appropriate, both morally, ethically, and and, and from a sales perspective. You're not going to knock anyone's door down and try and sell them this thing. That being said, on the other side of the line, when infection becomes and remains a really important part of the way medical systems think about what they're doing, one simple way to, re- to reduce what they call hospital-acquired infections, or HAIs, is to use a very, very effective uh, disinfecting solution, as in product, not as in uh, liquid solution, uh, disinfecting option, which is the Nanosonics Trophon machine. Um, they've also got a Trophon 2 out. The next generation of the machine is being sold. That'll go into new hospitals. And some actually will replace their old machines with the new ones. So they've got a nice replacement cycle coming along, which is important because otherwise, once you're sold to a hospital, they don't necessarily need a second or a third one. Um, but what they may need to do is replace the one they've got. And the new and improved technology from Trophon 2 offers exactly that that possibility. So, Nanosonics, a decent installed base, as I said, it's already becoming the standard of care, but there's still a very long runway, I think, for this company, both, as I said, installed machines, but importantly, also the replacement cycle and most valuably, the ongoing sale of the solution that actually goes into the machines to disinfect the probes. When you are the standard of care, A, you've got pricing power, B, you've got a pretty good way to sell your product to a hospital system. And I think Nanosonics will continue to do exactly that. That's Nanosonics, the code is N-A-N. I was going to just ask you quickly. I, yeah. I actually really like this company. Um, I was going to ask ask a quick question here. Shoot, I'll try and answer um, it. <laughs> and that's a very simple one. Um, so razor and blade. Yes. Why can't um, you know? Just like you can put um, any blade on a Gillette razor. Mm-hmm. Uh, why can't they use a Coles made <laughs> blade on the Trophon? 
of the Trophon 2. So it's possible they can in time. I think there's a couple of things. The first is that the technology that um, that Nanosonics provides is both the machine and the solution. And so, yes, someone could try and reverse engineer the solution. Um, eventually, I guess it loses patent protection. And in fact, that's the biggest risk is the patent protection goes away without a replacement. At some point, the Trophon machine itself will actually be out of patent protection actually reasonably soon, I think. And that's why Trophon 2 was so important, the next generation of it. I think if you're a hospital providing this sort of care, I don't know you want to put the coal solution in the nanosonics machine. I hope it works. I hope it works as well as the, the machine you know works. When, when someone says this particular product, this particular solution is the standard of care, you can say, oh, can I buy the cheap one? And you might get away with it. Uh, I reckon there's plenty of ways to save money in a hospital. Maybe it's sheets, maybe it's gloves, maybe it's something else. I don't reckon you're going to try and save a few bucks or maybe a few cents uh, buying a slightly cheaper disinfection solution. Um, in fact, yeah, is it possible? Yes, absolutely. You could physically put any any liquid you wanted in the machine, um, but the, the cost of doing it and the risk for the hospital in trying to find a slightly cheaper solution, I think it's probably not worth it, but it's absolutely a risk. You're dead right. Cool. Very cool. May I see your last company? It's an interesting one. I, I've, yeah. got a, I've got it in front of me. I'm not going to give it away, but uh, I was surprised to see you include it. Tell us about your third, our fifth stock for the post-COVID world. Yeah, so I was trying to, again, pick stocks that I think have been hit or hard by the current situation. So like trying to make it um, related. Yeah. Um, so this one I actually really like. Um, it's a company called IDP Education. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people have heard of this or not, but it's a basically a leader in uh, international education services. And what it does uh, is it basically connects students to universities. Okay. Right, and often it's about bringing um, you know foreign students to different countries. So bringing foreign students to Australia, which yep. is a big revenue source for universities, foreign students to Canada, UK, and the US. Um, so they they do that. They're basically a company that helps students in their journey. Uh, of finding, you know, and, and most of the time the students are coming from primarily non-English speaking uh, countries to okay. these countries. Uh, another thing that's related that this company does is it administers a test mm-hmm. uh, called the IELTS, okay. um, International English Language uh, Learning Test or something like that. IELTS okay. is, is the, there are two tests that basically are used worldwide. One is IELTS, another is TOEFL, uh, okay. test, test of English as a Foreign Language. Um, and these these two tests are not just used by universities, they're used by governments too. For example, mm. you know, if somebody is coming from a foreign country, um, a non-English speaking country into Australia and they're applying for say permanent residency, mm. they would be asked uh, for their competence in English. And one way to establish competence is right. to take a standardized test. Course. Right, um, so they they run the standardized test with the British Council. Uh, British Council, uh, they own it with the British Council. So this is a, you know, so they have two sides of the business, and I guess in some sense both sides of the business uh, have been hit. Right, you mm. know, less and 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 these tests, for example, TOEFL and IELTS, mm. they're taken by foreign students and by foreign workers and things like that, but. If there's no migration happening, whether it is for students, you know, temporary migration or permanent migration uh, that requires these tests, then, well, the tests have been hit. Mm. Students are not coming because, well, uh, because universities are unable to take students right now. So it's in, in many ways, it's a perfect storm. Um, Which makes it an aggressive uh, recommendation, mate. So no, no, no one's coming to the country. Yeah. And you're saying this is a great time to buy the stock. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, if you think about how the university, so I'm going to use Australia as an example, mm. how much the international students contribute in sheer dollar terms mm. in tuition fees. 
Like many universities have been ha- have had to cut faculty salaries, fire mm. staff. To you know, this is a meaningful impact on their um, on on their business model or the university's business model. That sounds bad to use business and university, <laughs> at the same time. doesn't it? But 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 the business model of the university is really is hurting right now. Now, well, of course, with business model for, for international students, I mean that is a business, right? In the sense that I mean, I guess it's all a business. There is there is a there is a profit and a loss, and there is a cost and a and a revenue. So it's all it has those business characteristics. But the the, the for profit. Effectively, um, international education business is exactly that. Is exactly that, and and this this is um, yeah. So again, without going to you know the moralities and stuff like that, you know whether it's right wrong, uh, you know is that the right business? I'm not going to that, but I, I think mm-hmm. it's it's a humongous component of the education sector in Australia, and I don't think it's going to. It's unlikely to change. Right. And and you know uh, there's there's another way to think about this is that every student that we lose, somebody else is going to take them. Mm. <laughs> so. That's true. It, it, That's right. True. You know, if we lose them, the you know the British are going to take them, the Americans are going to take yeah. them, the Canadians are going to take them. So there's all Bloody this Bloody Poms, Yanks, and Canucks. Yeah, I swear like to God. I mean, you know, like so. <laughs> effectively, I would think that there's going to be a way in which you're going to bring the students back eventually, yeah. maybe prior to you know completely opening up the borders and things yeah. like that. There's got to be some way to address that. So that's one, and and I think the tests are if it, and even not, I think Mm-mm. down the track. It's almost like an essential service that they're providing. Mm. And uh, yeah, so it's a risky bet, a uh, risky recommendation. But I think, again, this company's got plenty of cash mm. to uh, manage the, uh, the downturn to raise some uh, capital as well mm. recently. Um, yeah. Fascinating idea, mate. i got to say, let me editorialize before I ask you a question. It, it beggars belief for me that the government hasn't found a way to get the education borders reopened. Like I know, maybe it's because we're not doing a lot of in-person classes right now, so there's not a lot of value in doing it. But if you're coming here for an extended period of time, maybe a year, maybe a couple of years straight, to spend two weeks in a hotel in quarantine and then get back into the country feels like a really easy no-brainer to me. Like I just, I don't quite get why, okay, maybe it's because there's no classes being actually taught physically, listen to a lot of classes. But I mean, if you're, if you're a Chinese student, an Indian student, a New Zealand student, a, I don't know, where else do they come from? The majority areas, right? English student, whatever you are. Yeah, I get it. You've got to get on a plane. That's probably a bit scary. You probably don't want to you know, do all that sort of stuff. But if you're going to come to Australia for a couple of years anyway, spending two weeks in a hotel for us and for them feels like a pretty easy inconvenience to get people back into the education system. The government's probably always pay for that quarantine anyway, just to get them back into the country and back into the university, surely. Yeah, like I mean, you could you could you could fly a plane load of people, but you know, two hundred people right. from each of the countries that you are recruiting, and, and it's Literally, not two hundred. Right. Like yeah. I mean, you have thousands and thousands yeah, yeah. of people coming, and then Qantas it, to take the business. <laughs> well, Qantas to take the business, and it, it, there's this flow-on effects. It's not just the universities, right? I mean, these yeah. people are going to come. They're going to rent. Yeah. They're going to spend their money here. Um, it, it is almost a no-brainer in that sense. So, and that's why I think that. Um, and there are competition for these sort of things, right? I mean, if the, the longer we wait, somebody else takes takes our uh, cakes and eats it, right? So drives me nuts. Anyway. I would think that this is going to happen. So I it's think this will try. happen sooner than I think. I guess yeah. normal opening would yeah. be my bet. It's well, it makes sense if you're going on holidays for a couple of weeks. You're not going to spend that those two weeks and quite yeah. go home. Right. But if you're coming for a year or whatever it is, yeah. two it's weeks a is, is, is a yeah. You know, if somebody else pays for it, that's yeah. an incentive to come here uh, versus go somewhere that's else. Right. Two week holiday uh, in a hotel in Australia. I think you spend the rest of the year here studying. Yeah, I think it's put you in deal. a four star, five star hotel. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. a good deal to me. So <laughs> I, I think you know, and I guess it's a pretty diversified business. This is not just about you know coming mm-hmm. to Australia, right? I mean, although they have a significant operation here in Australia, mm. they have. You know the, the Americas, the Canada, um, Ireland, and the UK. So, 
you know, again, a pretty diversified business. Somebody's going to take those students. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> is what I'm saying. All right, now the IDP education, the code is I E L. Um, I've given I've given you a wrap, or at least given you a reason why. But just take the other side of this, mate. I mean, if this extends for any length of time, this is going to be almost a zero revenue business right now. Um, how, how how long until it sustains permanent structural damage, potentially a capital raising which dilutes shareholders permanently? I mean, you know, if you don't like if you don't like airlines, can you like IDP education? Yeah, so I think that is the risk. I mean, um, yeah, so if they can't really place students anywhere, which mm. I, I think that the reason I feel comfortable about this is that it's pretty diversified. So maybe right. they don't come to Australia, but they may go to Canada. Okay, yeah. They right. may go to the US. Yeah. They may go to the UK, right? So I think that... Uh, gives me some degree of confidence. Yeah, I think okay. because, you know, like um, many of the other countries, as I've said before, like many of the other countries have not, they're not going to be able to completely lock their borders because, right. um, you know, some countries are, their geographic borders are just not lockable, for example. Yeah, yeah. If um, I, I think that's the case. So I, th- I think that's the, there's travel anyways happening to mm-hmm. some minimal degree. So I think that gives me confidence. Um, yes, the longer it takes to open up and for things to normalize, it's a drag, mm. but it's pretty much like a leader in mm-hmm. this area. So I think there's a long-term growth opportunities yep. are, uh, are solid. And you, know, you, you, you know, you're taking, I think you're getting, you're taking on the risk, but I think you're getting some upside with that. Very good, mate. They are the first five. I have one left. That company is a business that, in theory, you wouldn't expect would be hurt meaningfully by COVID and certainly should bounce back reasonably well to the extent it is. And that's why Virtus Health is my third and our sixth stock for the post-COVID world. Now, Virtus Health, you may not know. You may well know some of its brands. It is an IVF, or as they like to say, assisted reproduction provider. And it basically helps people get pregnant, which is a pretty good thing to do. Now, in the past couple of months, when elective surgeries were put on hold, so were new IVF cycles. So people who wanted to have kids who hadn't already started their cycle couldn't continue or couldn't, sorry, start a cycle with Virtus Health. Now, if you believe as I do that people putting off families may be okay for a month or two or three, at some point you're not going to say, well, I'll put it off till everything gets better in five or six years. You've got people who are using IVF in particular often have either health or you know biological clock, if I can use that phrase, type reasons for wanting to get help with IVF. And the longer you leave it, the less fertile you are, the less likely IVF is to be able to help you conceive. Now, again, some people will absolutely say, okay, I missed my chance. I won't have kids now. It, you know, That was those two months or never. <clears throat> and that's fair enough. Most people though, I think, will say, I put it off for a couple of months, but I'm definitely going to go back. I'm now even, in, in a, you know, even keener because my, my opportunity set is now even shorter. I'm going to go and get some help to conceive and have a kid. And that's that's something that, you know, I think is a really important service that Virtus provides both here in Australia, but also in Singapore and in Ireland. And that's a business that I think, you know, again, despite the short-term concerns, um, is something that we really could or should expect will return to normal. Even when it does, the current share price really doesn't allow for anything like that sort of recovery. This is not going to be a hyper-growth stock anytime soon, by the way. IVF grows reasonably slowly in Australia. It's very lumpy because the number of people doing it are relatively small, believe it or not. And so year to year, you do get a lot of volatility in the number of procedures conducted nationally, let alone by Virtus itself, but also conducted across the world. And the Singapore and Irish businesses are an opportunity for growth. I, I don't consider them 
a, a huge part of the, the, the thesis. So they're almost kind of a free option. This was a $5 stock effectively pre-crisis. Now it got down under $2, which would have been a great time to buy, but it's only $3. That's effectively still a, you know, 40 odd percent reduction from its highs pre-COVID. Now there's nothing to say the price has to go back there just because it was there once. But if you think that the outlook for the business hasn't meaningfully changed in terms of the long-term number of cycles, the amount of money it's going to make, the number of services that it can provide. And if you believe, as I do, that not only will it continue to provide more and more services, but those services will be increased in terms of what it can do and therefore what it can charge for. And this is, again, a little bit like Docs with education and, and business. Health and business is a little bit of a squishy one. But if you can provide better or, or more comprehensive genetic testing, for example, if you can provide other ways of assisting reproduction that otherwise aren't traditional IVF, those things will come at a cost and people will choose to pay it or not. And that, that cost will be reasonable. Virtus doesn't make a squillion dollars of profit. It's not exactly, you know, taking huge advantage of its customers. It's providing a high quality service and, and charging a decent price, but its margins aren't exactly, um, you know, uh, suggesting it's ripping people off left, right and centre. It's simply charging a good price for a good service. And I think that will continue to be the case. It'll do more uh, more uh, cycles in future. So a cycle is one month's worth of attempted reproduction, if that makes sense. Um, it'll do more of those with more people. It'll be able to provide better services, more services, higher priced because they are higher technology services. Those things all, I think, augur well for growth in Virtus' business. And as and when it does, not only should it recover to its previous price, but go higher from there. And that, to my mind, makes Virtus, the code is VRT, um, my third, our sixth stock for the post-COVID world. Doc, do you have any questions or thoughts? No, actually, I have nothing really to Nothing say. to ask? I've, I've convinced you that thoroughly you're going to go buy the stock on Monday. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. So the idea, fools, while I'm in Dubbo, you get six stocks for the post-COVID world. Don't say we don't give you anything. Of course, we are going to double your cost for this podcast from zero to um. Actually, still zero. Anyway, that was I didn't think that through. Oh, well, there you go. Six stocks for free. How good is that? Six stocks for the post-COVID world. Let's run through them. Docs first was Catapult, the sports analytics company. The code is C-A-T. My first was Kogan, the online retailer. K-G-N, I don't think I gave the code for some round. K-G-N for Kogan. Doc's next one was EML Payments, the payment uh, med, med, intermediary um, that's powering payments all over the world in a whole lot of different ways in many, many countries and many, many uses. EML is the code for EML Payments. Nanasonics was my second. N-A-N is the code, the company that makes a machine and some solution for disinfecting probes in a effectively world's best practice kind of way. And Doc's last was IDP Education, the business that is bringing students to universities and universities to students. Maybe not so much now, but certainly in future, he expects it to continue to, and I think he's right. The code is I-E-L. And my last was Virtus Health, V-R-T is the code there. The business that is helping more Australians and more Singaporeans and more Irish people conceive and doing a good job of doing it. I think they'll do many, many more in future at a pretty knocked down price. So that's it. There's our six stocks for the post-COVID world. Of course, if you want to get a little bit more from us about some of those and other stocks, you can join our services. Here's an ad for both of them. I'm going to double it up. You can join Doc at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities if you want, and I think you should for a, as I said every week, a stupidly cheap price. Um, you're getting market-beating performance. You're getting two smart, capable guys looking for the big winners of tomorrow, maybe including those three stocks, maybe including others on top of that. And if you want to join Doc at EO, and I think you should, go to fool.com.au forward slash E 
EO podcast. That's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and get your fill of Motley Fool Extreme opportunities. I think you'll be glad you did. If you want to join Share Advisor as well, and hey, if one is good, two is better, you can join me and Andrew Leggett at Motley Fool Share Advisor. Now we're looking for not, not taking the same degree of risk or, or looking for the small companies like these guys are. We're looking for mid-large cap, often growthy companies, occasionally a, a value play or special situation. We're looking to find market-beating opportunities from more established businesses effectively. That's Motley Fool Share Advisor. We are eight and a half years old now. The Motley Fool's very first service here in Australia, still delivering a market-beating track record. So pretty chuffed about that, as is Docket EO, by the way. So if you want to join us at Share Advisor as well as EO, do that as well. Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. SA for Share Advisor, that's fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Again, not quite as stupidly cheap, but still stupidly cheap. SA and EO together are probably still, even together, Doc, probably still less than a cup of coffee, maybe a cup, a cup and a half of coffee a week. That's, that's a pretty good deal if you're giving market beating share uh, advice, surely. It's very cheap. There you go. You I have it? asked for my uh, services fees to be increased by <laughs> 5x. It has been declined. He Exactly. I was going to say, he asks regularly, not because he doesn't love you, because he thinks the value is higher than the price. I think that's exactly right. And tell you what, if you're, if you're looking for a share that's worth more than what you pay for it, and you should be, why not buy an investment service that is also worth a heap more than what you're paying for it? And if that's true for you, I reckon Extreme Opportunities or Share Advisor or ideally both might be exactly the way you want to go. All right, mate, we're done. Six stocks for the post-COVID world in the can, ready for our listeners' listening and dancing pleasure. We hope you enjoyed hearing about some of those stocks. We'll be back when I'm back next week. So we'll be back on relatively live terms from next week as I get back from Dubbo, assuming good Lord willing the creek don't rise. I got back safely and everything was good. In the meantime, do me a favour, subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast. Give me a bit of a present when I come back from leave. And of course, do it through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app or Podcast One, the new podcast family that we're part of, part of Southern Cross Australia that also owns Triple M, of course. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, please. Five stars would be lovely. Leave us a review and do please tell your friends because who couldn't use a little more foolish straight in their lives. I certainly could. You certainly could. I'm pretty sure they could as well. Speaking of foolishness, you can get it straight to your inbox and an offer to join Dividend Investor, our other entry-level investment service, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.